Support for Paradox comes from the Timothy Center, a place for adolescent and family healing. The Timothy Center is a marriage and family counseling facility in Austin, Texas, offering distance consultations for those that live outside the Austin area. If your family is struggling and you'd like to consult with Jimmy, Josh, or one of their trained professionals, visit them at timothycenter.com. And so now I think over the last couple of years, the trend that I love seeing and, and I'm um, just fired up about is the the, the remarriage of both, of um, emotion and theology, of putting those things back together. Recording live from Austin, Texas, a conversation about marriage and family that guys won't want to turn off. Dr. Jimmy Myers and Dr. Josh Myers are a paradox. Welcome, everybody, to Paradox. Uh, we're so glad you're here, and we're especially glad to have with us today Aaron Ivey. And he is the worship pastor at Austin Stone. He is a songwriter, he's an author, a speaker, and he's an adoption advocate. And mostly, he's known as Mr. Jamie Ivey. That's so true. And how many times have you been introduced that way? Well, I mean, just recently, like for the first 15 years of our marriage, it was the you know opposite way. So now I'm getting a taste of what she's felt like for 15 years. Uh, that's great. And you guys have four kids, three of those children adopted. Right. All right. I want to, and this was just when I first heard that you were going to be gracious enough to do this with us. This was my first question to a worship pastor. Okay. I've always felt that we needed to go back to the heart of worship because it's, it's really all about Jesus. And I don't know if you're sorry for the thing you made it, but so I think you could expound a little on your guilt uh, <laughs> over what you've made worship. I have no guilt. Okay. Very nice. And we'll move on. Um, let's see. Your latest album uh, is, is entitled Between uh, Beauty and the Cross, or uh, excuse me, Between the Beauty and Chaos. Tell me about the album. What inspired the music behind it? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I've been, I've had the privilege of, of doing music and, and writing songs um, since college, really. So for the past 15 years, and it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but I've always loved the, the art of being, tell being able to tell stories and um, tell truths with, with songs. And so the project that you're talking about mostly came from while we were in the adoption process um, of adopting Amos and Story, uh, our two kids that came home from Haiti. And um, that's where a lot of the stories came from and a lot of the songs and lyrics came from. And since then, you know, all the music that I, that I do now, um, is with our church, uh, which is called Austin Stone. And so, um, the, the jump kind of happened, um, about 2010 where we just decided that, um, you know, it was just became more of a passion and more of a, a heart to, to, to write songs specifically for my church instead of for anything else, you know, and I just fell in love with writing songs for the church specifically to sing. So that's what I've been doing the last six years is writing songs specifically for that. I mean, still taking Sweet. concepts and stories and things that I'm living and translating mm -hmm. that into songs that are singable in the corporate setting. But, right. but yeah, I just, I really love the art of, of being able to put words and melodies together and for people to be able to resonate with them. Right. Now, going back now, I was raised Southern Baptist. So um, we, we do hymns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in the day from up from the grave, he arose and 
uh, mighty fortress is our God. Actually, those things are really kind of an amazing. I love it when you can sit there with a kid and seeing a mighty fortress is our God, knowing that, you know, you're kind of joined with with hundreds of years of believers in, in singing that. But it seemed to be, and you tell me, it seemed to be back in the day when there were hymns that there was a there was much more of an emphasis on theology than than today. Right. And not, not that it's diminished or anything, but it just seems like there was there was a high priority on the inclusion of theology in hymns where that may not be the biggest priority today. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, early hymn writers, the way that they would form songs is they would take these really deep, um, complex sort of ideas and put them to very familiar melodies that people were already singing in. in yeah, like, and yeah, like, yeah, bar songs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so they'd put theology to these very hooky singing melodies and um and and that's how people learned theology and so somewhere in the last you know 100 years or so we kind of swung the pendulum um the other direction where songs um were still hooky and catchy but but didn't say as much you know and they didn't they, the purpose wasn't to teach theology i think it it kind of came from almost like a um a little bit of rebellion of we're tired of singing these deep songs. We want to sing songs that have more heart to them and um, are easier to kind of like be emotive as you're singing them. And so now I think over the last couple of years, the trend that I love seeing and, and I'm um, just fired up about is the the, the remarriage of both of um, emotion and theology of putting those things back together. Yeah. And in, awesome. in your bio, you talk about, uh, you want worship that is content rich in theology, expression and mission. And I think that's kind of part of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Where it's not rich on one and, um, void of all the others, but I think there can be this blend of, of all three, of all three things where it's very artful it's true theologically. It's teaching you something. It's teaching your heart something as you sing it. And it's also paired with with the sense of mission. And with that mission, um, you also talk about um, the importance of our community outside of the church walls seeing our worship. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, I grew up in a, in a church setting where, you know, worship was just defined by um a, a period of time on a Sunday and worship was only when the singing was happening. And so worship was was kind of in these little small boxes. And so there wasn't much connection or correlation between our action and what we're doing on Monday through Saturday having anything to do with with worship at all. You know, and then the more um, the more that Jamie and I kind of fell in love with with mission work and our eyes were open to issues of uh, extreme poverty in the world. And we started seeing like God's heart for adoption and his heart for serving the poor and um, being an advocate for things um, that were unjust. We started to realize what, you know, what the scriptures talk about worship is usually not singing. It's usually not what happens in that one or two hours of a church. Sure. When he's talking about worship, he's always talking about He's always talking about serving the poor. He's always talking about the orphan and the widow. He's always talking about caring for people that our, our, our bodies are a living sacrifice. And so early on in our marriage, we really um, we didn't even have to wrestle with it. You know, we just started learning more about what God's definition of worship was. And we experienced in our marriage us becoming worshipers outside of 
a normal Sunday sort of thing. And, and that's really what stretched our, our understanding of it. And now our aim to, to teach worship in a, in a much broader sort of holistic sense. And you mentioned uh, the scriptural mandate to take care of orphans. Uh, you guys, you and Jamie, obviously are um, uh, individuals that love and also do personally the whole adoption process. So I'd love for you to speak to y'all's experience of adoption. Sure. Um, well, we had our first biological son, and uh, he wasn't even, you know, out of diapers. And my wife was like, I think that we should um, we should adopt next. And adoption was something that Jamie and I never really talked about. We didn't think about early on in, in marriage, you know. But we were around uh, a community of, of people that were, a lot of them were adopting um, and so it just became kind of like a new normal. I mean, we always experienced uh, families, you know, going to the airport in Nashville. We were living in Nashville at the time, going to the airport to, to you know, to meet their their new adopted kid. And so it just became this like new normal for us to see that happening, see families being built that way. And God just began to um, ignite that in, in our own hearts as well. And so we we stepped out and um, uh, just in total curiosity and um showed up at a, an adoption agency uh, informational meeting. It was just like a Q&A. Hey, if you're even interested in adoption, come check this out. And so my wife and I sat in there, you know, with our, I think Caden was 18 months old at the time. And, um, you know, a lot of sense we, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea what it meant um, or how to adopt or anything like that. We just were, we just were burdened with hey, sure. kids out there and we have a home and we have, the gospel, and we have um, the ability and the means to do it. Why? How could we not? Why wouldn't we? Sure. And so Deacon, um, we adopted him from Texas, um, a domestic adoption. And then after that, we uh, fell in love with the country of Haiti. My wife went on a couple trips there and just came back, and she's like totally broken over what she saw. And we started the process of adopting a little boy. His name was Dewinsky. Um, he eventually became Amos Dewinsky Ivy. And we were in that process for about three and a half years waiting for him to come home. Just a lot of um, years of just ups and downs and this long, brutal process of paperwork and bureaucracy and, and all the kind of stuff that goes on with international adoption. And in the middle of that process, uh, another little girl showed up at the um, at the the place where where Amos was was at, and so they called us and they're like, "Hey, you're already in the process of adopting Amos. Would you consider adopting this little girl also?" And I don't know. It was just the Lord that did this because both of us were like, "Well, yeah, absolutely. That makes total okay. sense. How could we say no to that? You know, sure. we're already in the middle of adopting one. It's easier to adopt um, two children." At the same time than it is to adopt one and then a couple years later, you know, adopt another one. You can just kind of do it all at the same time. And so uh, they they both came home about three and a half years after we started the process with, with Amos. And they've been home, both of them, for six and six and a half years now. We want to ask you a few marriage questions. Um, but before we do, can you speak to uh, maybe one or two just... Some of the difficulties, if that's the right word, uh, that you guys have encountered uh, with adoption. Oh, man. You, you need to do another podcast episode where we talk about the difficulties of it. it, it, it adoption is both the most, um, the most beautiful and wonderful thing and the most complex and, and um, difficult things, you know, because any adoption, no matter where, where the adoption takes place or what the story is, 
there's always a sense of that adoption being rooted in some sadness, you know, whether it's a birth mom that that makes a, a really um, selfless decision, there's still sadness there, or it's a, a kid that was abandoned or neglected. Um, every story of adoption has some sort of root of sadness to it. And a lot of kids that come home that are older, like our, our two were, um, you know, they, they lived without a mom and a dad in um, really difficult situation for for four, four and a half years of their life. And so there is a sense of like, I think a lot of people think, well, if I'm going to adopt a kid, I'm really saving them and they're going to come home and they're going to be super grateful that I saved them and I brought them home and they have a house now and have food now and have clothes now. But in the, in a child's um, mind and from their perspective, they've been uprooted from everything that's always been comfortable to them. Whether we think it was comfortable or not, that was what their normal was and their, their comfort was. And so there's just a lot of, um, there's a lot of painful issues that kids have to really work through and some, uh, you know, might have to work through it for their entire life um, because of growing up in um, situations of neglect or abuse or, or whatever, a, a hundred other sort of things. And so I think the thing when we talk about adoption early on as adoption advocates who were super, super young in adoption, we would say um, adoption is is amazing and you sh everybody should do it and it's going to change your life and it's going to change their life and it's just going to be awesome because you're saving a life. And now as we've matured a little bit in that and have gone through years of of, of parenting adopted kids, um, I feel like we have a little bit more of a, um, a holistic sort of view of it, you know, and maybe even a more appropriate view of adoption now where it's like it is wonderful and it is glorious that God puts families together through adoption, but it is also really difficult. And, um, and you know, loving and parenting an adopted kid, um, it, it requires a measure of grace that, that God is willing to give, but it's a measure of grace that he has to give. Um, because on paper, parenting an adopted kid is just, it's very different. It's very different. There are things that we do as we're parenting um, our kids from Haiti that are completely different and then how we, uh, you know, parent our, our biological kid, just because there's years and years and years of nurturing that um, our kids that spent four years in Haiti, they missed out on. And so we have to make up for that and we have to parent in a very different way. Mm -hmm. You said a couple of times that you use the phrase, we brought them home, uh, that, you know, this is their home. How important is uh, your adopted kids that their their home culture of Haiti how important is it going to be to include that in their upbringing, if at all? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I think that um, that 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 the, the answer to that question, I think, um, varies from from family to family, like to, to the d degree that they feel comfortable um, and how soon they feel comfortable really talking about um, where their kids came from. And again, man, I think if you would ask me this. Ten years, right. ago, I would say, hey, from day one, you tell the whole story and you just explain it all, and, and it's all laid out there. But right. our kids come from very, very difficult stories, like very, very hard stories, and so we're only letting them know their story as their age um, allows. You know, right. just very age appropriate levels of of their their story. And so, right now, they know where they came from. They know that we love the country of Haiti. If they ask right now to go visit Haiti, we don't think they're ready to, you know, mm -hmm. but we want to parent them in a way that when they're, you know, 15, 20, 25 or whatever, that they 
they go and they serve the country that they came from and they fall in love with it and they're able to be uh, ambassadors like to to the villages they, they came from. That's, the, that's what we're hoping for. But as we're parenting them towards that, we're realizing that we have to be slow and cautious on, on how much to really tell them about sure. where they came from and what their story looks like. Absolutely. Listen, we're, we're sort of running out of time, so but I do want to ask you this one thing. Your wife told us that y'all always have a date night, and she, she told us what her favorite date night was. Mm. And so we're sort of curious as to whether you would name the same as she did. Oh, gosh. Is it a, a place or a, like a, just a, a thing that we do? Is it like, did she get specific? Uh, she did. <laughs> favorite date uh-huh. night place. Yeah. See if you if you get this wrong, it's gonna look so bad. <laughs> I mean, we always go somewhere different. What? She's crazy. What's she talking about? <laughs> I mean, our favorite okay. thing to do is to go to a restaurant mm-hmm. and um, eat chips and salsa. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Contigo. Oh, that is yeah. our favorite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's right. That is it. Yeah, that's very exactly. nice. You came very close. Golly. I that's think the really... judges would actually give that to you. I feel like that's a fair win. Oh, absolutely. Very nice. Listen, Aaron, we certainly do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Hey, run, do not walk to AaronIvy.com. You can find his music on both iTunes and Google Play. Um, search Aaron Ivy, but also search uh, Austin Stone for his music. You can find him on Twitter and Facebook. His handle is Aaron Ivy. And then on Instagram, he is Aaron Ivy TX. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. So the passion that he has for the adopting and he, he didn't speak like a rookie. No. Uh, A lot of what was coming out of his mouth uh, was, was learned in the trenches of doing it. Uh, To include him washing his hands. Did you hear that? I was just so hoping that no toilet was going to (laughs) flush. He's a man of many talents. You'd have had to say, Bill, see what you can do. So when he spoke to, to parenting his adopted kids differently, um, that was that was very insightful. You know, that's something he learned in the trenches. Um, and it's so incredibly important to consider the lack of attachment. Yeah. Uh, the lack of attachment process that they have been able to, to have because they weren't your birth children. And even children. though you, you, know, you may say, ah, oh, they were four years old. I mean, how much how much loss can there be in four years? And it. A ton of loss. I mean, that that adopt or that attachment process. um, I mean, the first two, three, four years is paramount. Yeah. yeah. Not that it cannot be overcome, um, but it's it's certainly a a critical time that they didn't have. And I loved it, you know, because a lot of people will say, well, I want them to go and I want them to learn about their culture and, uh, you know, which is which is really cool. But I loved his emphasis. I want them to go back and serve their culture and yep. serve their country. Really, really nice. Great, great guy. Yeah, and if you have not listened to his music, it is very, very good. Now, And this is coming from a man who really doesn't do music. No, you don't. I do sports radio. You make fun of music a lot. <laughs> Uh, but I was able to sample his music uh, before the show, and it is really good. So definitely wow. um, check so it out. So someone who hates music is giving it a thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, maybe even two 
proverbial you thumbs know this up. is sort of like an anorexic giving a restaurant review i'm not sure <laughs> how much credence we can place on it check us out at paradoxpodcast.com we update information there daily you can also sign up for our email list serve to to be able to be emailed updates you can find us at twitter facebook and instagram at docs d-o-c-s podcast and then my josh's um uh, twitter facebook and instagram handle is doc d-o-c josh myers and I'm not coordinated. So my Twitter and Instagram are jmyersfam and at jamesmyersfam. And then Facebook is Dr. Jimmy Myers. Thanks for uh, enjoying the show today, hopefully. No, don't thank him for enjoying it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And uh, check us out on Monday. See ya. Paradox is produced by Billy Lee Myers Jr. and researched by Dr. Jimmy and Dr. Josh Myers. Special thanks to Life Austin Church in Austin, Texas, and our Paradox evangelist, Julie Lyles Garr. To find out more about the Paradox and to sign up for email updates, go to our website, paradoxpodcast.com. Next time on Paradox. I grew up uh, in an era, and not my parents, thankfully, but I grew up in an era where, you know, we were told that we could do anything and everything. I mean, that was, that was the Sesame street message. That was God forbid the Sunday school message, but everything was, you can imagine it, you can do it. And so you got a generation of people out there of big imaginations and reality has hit us pretty hard.